Hi, everybody. This is David Reese of Saint and Sinners, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to that which we have called since 2010, Focus on Metal. It's amazing to think that uh, we've been doing this thing for uh, almost eight years now. And one thing that really kind of makes you realize how long you've been doing this is the number of returning guests that we have on the show seems like an almost consistent basis of having people on and then realizing, crap, we've had these guys on one, two, three, four times before, some even more than that. And this week's guest is no exception there. Yep, almost a year ago, we had David Reese on the show for episode 321, talking all about the debut Sainted Sinners album. Also had Jack Russell on that show, in case you're curious. And you want to go back and check that one out, you can go up to uh, focusonmetal.net, go to the episodes page, scroll down to episode 321 and hit the uh, download or streaming link and you can hear all of that episode in its glory. But this week, David comes aboard once again to talk about a brand new Sainted Sinners album. That's right. Guys have come back with their sophomore effort. It's called Back With A Vengeance. And Richie was able to uh, touch base with David to find out what's going on with uh, with the album, with the lineup, all that good stuff, as well as delving into a little bit of uh, metal history, if you will, because, of course, David was in Accept. He was also in Bonfire. He was in Bangalore Choir. Guys had a long history in the business, lots of stories, and Richie was able to get a lot of cool stuff out of him this week. So, again, you'll be hearing all about the brand-new Sainted Sinners album Back with a Vengeance, as well as some great stories from David's past. So lots of ground to cover on this one, and David gave Richie a lot of time, so that's all we're doing this episode. It's all David Reese. So what do you say we spin the title track from the brand new Sainted Sinners album, and then go right into Richie's conversation with our returning special guest, David Reese. to Richie, please. Hi, is that David? Yes, it is. Hi, David. How are you doing? Nice to talk to you. I'm good. You're in Italy. Nice it- to talk to you, too. You're in Italy, are you? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, in Tenda, about an hour south of Milano. Okay, so you're six hours ahead of me, then, I'd say. I'm, I'm, just, yes, outside of, I'm just outside of Boston. Ah, are you Irish? I am Irish, yes, I am. Ah, uh-uh, sounds like I can hear it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I know that I kind of have an idea of the time difference. You know, I'm calling my parents all the time and 
you know, I, I got to be like, okay, how, what time is it over there? So I figured Italy was an hour extra. Yeah. So you're uh, you're uh, five hours uh, behind Ireland, yeah? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. So D- David, are you? Is that where you live now in Italy? Yeah, yeah. I'm married to an Italian woman. I uh, was married, moved here in 2014, uh, late year. Okay, because I, I was going to ask you, did you move there? Because, you know, that might be where a lot of your work is now. Uh, that's one of the reasons. The main reason was a beautiful lady, but uh, it's very helpful to be, you know, on the European continent, to be honest. There's a lot of work here for me. Yeah. yeah, I've often wondered, like the likes of Joel Lynn Turner, um, he's one example. He sp- seems to spend a lot of time in Europe and in Russia and in other parts of the world, and yet he still lives in the I States. Think, yeah, he lives in Jersey, right? Yeah. I think he's uh, he's married to a girl from Belarus, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So he's very uh, in tune with the Russian people. They love him there. I mean, he's he loves Putin and all those people, so he's kind of a superhero in Russia. <laughs> yeah, but it's just the traveling I always boggles my mind with like musicians that spend all their time abroad, and yet they still want yeah. to live in the U.S. And, of course, with you living in Italy, Germany is just not too far, France, Spain... You know, you're you're right there. Well, you know, for me to drive to my guitar player playing Pondage is about five hours, but I get to go through Switzerland and Austria, beautiful countryside. Um, and then, you know, to Spain, it's about a one hour and 15 minute flight, and it's not that expensive. So, you know, that that's the good thing. Scandinavia, about two hours. So it's, it's, it's convenient because I can fly from Milano, you know, it's a pretty major airport. Yeah, and it must be easier to record as well because... You don't have to do it over the internet, or, or do you? Do you actually yeah. record the albums like in the room together? Uh, well, this one, no, we did it all separately. I do all the vocals typically at a place called Tanzan Music in Ostrolodeto, Italy, with a guy named Mario Percadani, fantastic producer. He brings up the best in me that I can get. I used to have a studio at home, and I found that I'd go into the room and start recording, and I thought, oh, that's bloody great. And then when I listen back to it, I go, no, it's not, because you know you kind of believe your own. Yes. So uh, going to outside of my house and getting in an environment with the guy behind the glass engineering me and producing my vocals, working on pitch and harmony, it just it's just better for me. You know, I'm not as good at training to singing myself and recording as I could be. So I prefer to go outside of the home. Yeah. Do you prefer to like all record together? Like was it was it difficult for you to get used to doing it that way? I prefer the live situation, but, you know, financially and logistically, you know, label budgets don't, you know, get behind that like they used to because they know they can get you to do it at home, you know, the, the reg, other guys. Mm-hmm. Typically what we do is we'll take um, a click track, you know, with the electronic uh, computer drums and we'll put that as the bed track and then we'll play the rhythm guitars and I'll sing the vocals and then we'll give back the drum tracks that are electronic to the drummer and he will play live drums to it. Okay. But I absolutely prefer the old model because there's nothing like standing in a room and like in an isolation booth and singing and the band seeing you and you're part of it. And if you get a really great take, sometimes you can just go back and, and repair some of the glitches in the voice or the bad pitch. But definitely live is more rock and roll, trust me. But this is the day and age of you know, the internet and you know, I don't really I don't really care for it, but it's kind of a necessary evil. Yeah. It's not lost on me that you're in Italy. And of course, Frontiers has a shitload of bands on it. And you're not on Frontiers, which is like, wow. I know. I you know, I don't know what it is about Frontiers. I've solicited, I've got a new solo album coming out. I signed a major deal with a company called Target out of Copenhagen. And I've submitted myself to Frontiers. They turned it down. It was too heavy and too modern. Well, it's weird because they just started doing a metal label. And that's why I submitted it. So I don't know if they don't like me there or what it is. I mean, I'm affiliated with Alessandro Vecchio. I work with all those people. But they've never really taken a sincere interest in me as an artist, which is fine. You know, I mean, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Now, let, let me talk about the new record, uh, The Sainted Sinners Back right. of Vengeance. Um, you were pretty quick in getting this one out because the, the, the first album was released, I believe, at the beginning of last year. Was that deliberate? Yeah. I believe in that. Um, there's a few reasons. Um, and the cool thing is, there's no leftover tracks from the first album. This is all fresh stuff. I went back to America last summer. One of the reasons is, is Frank Pane still plays in Bonfire. 
So Saint of Tenders comes out, and then about three months later, Bonfire will release a new album. So they go out on a pretty heavy tour. We don't get the scheduling of them, you know what I mean? So we're kind of at a, I guess, a limited time space, you know what I mean, to stay current. So uh, while I was in America last summer, Frank started sending me ideas. So I was writing them down as I was working my construction job. And then when I came back, I was pretty prepared for what he had to offer. So we started, you know, organizing the tracks. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just that, you know, it seems to me like a new band, you kind of got to release the albums pretty quickly now or people will forget about you. Right. Well, this is our sophomore release, right? Second one. So we were kind of, you know, the title speaks for itself. I mean, a lot of people thought, well, this is a project for David and Frank. And it's not. I mean, in a sense, it may be because he's in Bonfire and I'm doing some other things. But you've got to be relevant. You know, you can't just throw out an album and say, oh, we're a band and then disappear into oblivion, you know? Yeah, well, what I love about the two albums you've done is like they they have that 70s sound, but they're not overproduced ah, yeah. either because you've got the technology yeah. now where you can layer everything. It's very, I'll tell you what, I do vocal takes. Uh, if I go to work on a song, and it's not coming, I'll move on to the next one. Then I'll double it, you know, some of the tracks, so it's some harmonies, and, you know, in three to four hours in a day, I'm done. If it takes you all day to sing a vocal track, typically that song's not speaking to me, you know. Okay. I want to ask you about some of the songs on the record. Rising yeah. Like a Phoenix, over eight minutes long, is a, is a brilliant track. Thank you. Was that one of the first ones that you wrote for this? Uh, you know, I think... It was actually came a little bit later, like in the middle of the process. Actually, the title for me is my mother's always saying to me, you know, I've been through some pretty rough times, rough and tumble times in the music business, but she goes, you always manage to rise like a phoenix. And it's always kind of stuck in my mind when there's trouble and things to do and tribulation. So I just started writing that lyric one day and, and he sent me this riff and it just sat right on it perfectly. Um, I think it probably was about third or fourth song we started delving into. Um, I want to say that songs like Tell Me I Was Wrong and Wait Until the Countdown Begins. Those are the earlier ones that I think you remember. Yeah, Wait, Wait Until the Countdown Begins is my favorite track on the album. I, lo I love the light and shade on it. Like It's got that epic Thank feel. Thank you very much. niece who lives in Guam and you know when this lunatic in North Korea started shooting missiles on the people her husband serves in the US military he would just come back when all that happened so here you are fighting in Afghanistan and you come home and your, your island could be decimated so she was writing us she was scared and I was kind of had the sound off on the television when I'm working and writing and I just kind of look up and I'll see news alerts and I get inspired by some of that stuff so that kind of is where that idea came from okay 
And like the title track to me sounds like classic Van Halen a little bit. Which one? The the title track. Oh, uh, right, like a phoenix. No, back with a vengeance. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, I misunderstood. Yeah, back with a vengeance. That is that is true. I'm hearing that a lot. You know, the last album, Fergie Dornberg played all the keyboards with a lot of slide guitar, and. Fergie's got a heavy schedule with Axel Rudy Pell, and he's in about three other really big bands, and actually plays in a big German punk band. So the scheduling conflicts were just getting so hard to deal with that Frank said, well, fuck it, let's just do a a guitar-orientated album. And I said, Frank, we can't do that. You know, we, we, we really have it up with the Hammond and the White Snake Purple feel on the first one. We have to keep some of those elements, yeah? And... uh what I said, what I'm willing to do is let you shine as a guitarist, and uh, we'll kind of just put it in the background, not so obvious. So for the keyboards, you've got Eric Rongno and uh, a guy named Angel Vafiedelis uh, from Greece, who's played on a few tracks. But it's more guitar-orientated now, like you said, more organic, less processed and uh, overproduced. Mm-hmm. And Frank's coming from, as a German, you know, the Germans are typically influenced only by Blackmore and, you know, say, Wolf Hoffman or Michael Scheiter. But Frank comes from a vast array of influences like Rory Gallagher, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, Finn Lizzy. So a lot of those elements, and Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. So he's got a lot of that stuff as a non-typical German, which I really enjoy because being an American, that's what I also grew up on, you know? Yeah. Now, how much touring were you able to do on the first record? We did about 15 shows. Okay. Are all, that, out, all outside the U.S.? All outside of the U.S., yeah. I had actually put together a, a package of 30 shows last year for the U.S., but, I, you know, with all this uh, immigration problems that we're having, uh, it turned into, like, a financial fiasco and paperwork, a mountain of paperwork. I mean, for each member, it was like 2,500 euros if you're a non-U.S. citizen, plus... The U.S. government now is requiring each venue, what you're paid. Um, I mean, it was you had to do at least 30 shows just to break even. So we just kind of looked at it and said, forget it. Wow, wow. Yeah, because... Horrible, horrible. I, I was looking at 40,000 euros just to get the band stateside. Wow, because, you, you know, a lot of... I, I'm a friend with you on Facebook, and it's like any band now. It's like, please come here, please come here, please come to this town, and... They don't realize that there's a lot of financial logistics to it, as well as like it's not the band that goes to the town; it's the promoter has got to be willing to bring the bands over. And they don't really care, to be honest, sir. They, you know, Richie, they 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 look at you like, well, I've got ten other bands that will play for free. You know, they always ask you, how many can you guarantee to come to the show? Well, let's think about it. What if it rains and you have bad weather? What if you book me on a Tuesday night and somebody has a day job? Um, they're not willing, the club owners and theaters are not willing to cover room expenses now. So you, you incur all of those extra expenses on top of low offers for fees. So it's, it's a no-win situation right now. That's why they're doing all these giant American packages of the same boring shows every year. I mean, how many Docket and Firehouse gigs can you see in one year? Yeah, yeah. Right? that's the only way they can get gigs, though. Right. I mean, but that sells tickets. I mean, they know they're going to get a few thousand every year. It's a great meeting place. I'm not bad-mouthing it, but I wish they would open up their minds and bring over some more European bands or bands from the U.S. that really deserve a kick, you know? Yeah, the, the one thing that bugs me about living here, when I'm, I, go, I try and go to as many gigs as I can, the bands come on so bloody late. Like, in Europe, you got to yeah. be finished at a certain time. Over here, you could you could get to a venue and think, okay, the band's going to be on at nine. And then you get there and there's three bands on before the main band. And they start at nearly midnight and you're up at five o'clock the next day. It's like, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to spend the money and take the chance. And like in England or the UK, you've got the queues, you know, the train stop running at 11. Yeah. And you know, transport guy wants to drink some pints before he goes. He can't drive. And all of the bands, we start at seven, you know, and if you have an opening act, they get about 30 minutes. You're on at eight o'clock. You're done at 10. Everybody can shuffle out, get on the tube, and go home, right? It's it's great. Yeah. Same with Germany. I mean, you know, they're closed at midnight, many clubs. I mean, it's it's smarter, smarter business. Yeah, I, I've spoken to a few musicians, and they actually hate playing late because they could they they could I be understand. getting they could be getting in an air they could be flying out at four o'clock in the morning, you know, to go home. Absolutely, and 
you know, who wants to set through three bands that are playing cover songs that you've heard a million times? Yeah, and you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny I, as you're talking about this. You know, like when I was trying to book the U.S. dates, a lot of the uh, promoters were telling me they were having trouble with the good ones. That the age group now with with melodic rock is getting older, correct? Correct. So for a guy, a guy to go stand on a concrete floor and watch two opening bands until say ten thirty, and then the headliner, it's difficult to stand there. You know, you get into your thirties, forties, and fifties. They're now saying ticket buyers are requesting dinner and places to sit down and watch the band. <laughs> yeah, so, I, a lot of the. Go ahead. Now I saw. I remember I went to see Glenn Hughes about two yeah. years ago, and the venue. I, I no no word of a lie, David. It was. It was like a wedding reception. It was all round tables yeah. with people going around with menus and Glenn on the stage <laughs> with his band playing. It was surreal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they have those in Italy too. You know, it's kind of cool though. It's a nice setting. You can sit there and get a meal, watch your band. You know, a lot of times they'll play acoustic. The, the great songs in acoustic manner are low, low level. It's kind of intimate, but you know, that would be kind of boring if you had to do that every night, I think. Yeah. Do you try and get to a lot of gigs in Italy when you're there? Well, matter of fact, I just went to see my old mates in Accept last night. I went to Milan to see the new tour. Okay. Uh, they offered me a, a handout to come see the band. I went to see the band. Uh, actually, about a thousand people in this nice club. Uh, three bands, two young uh, bands opened, and they were actually very good. Band came, Accept came on around ten. We're done at eleven thirty. Um, yeah, I try to get as many as I can. I, I do a lot of uh, gigs in the eastern part of Europe as well. I do opening shows with Ian Pace, and he I join him with my band, St. Sinners, and we play the B-sides of all the Deep Purple stuff, which he's not allowed to do with Deep Purple, which is amazing, because we get to play the classics, you know, the stuff that you and I grew up on, right? <laughs> so I get to do that whole thing, and... Uh, when I'm in other countries, if I have a day off and there's a band that people say are good, I may not understand the language, but I can feel what they're playing, you know? Yeah. Do, do you watch the musicians as well? You know, is that something you're looking for, yeah. saying that this guy is local, he's really good, I might be able to use him? Yeah, I do. Last night I watched a drummer in a band called Night Demon. Oh, I know him, yeah. Everything, he's everything in a drummer that I like. I mean, he's young, powerful, aggressive, has finesse. Uh, you know, he's just the kind of drummer. The, the, the solo band that I have, I have a guy named Philip Nies, a German kid. He's in his early 30s. He's fantastic. He's got that hunger, that pounding, aggressive, but he's also got that touch. You know what I mean? He doesn't hit from the elbow. He hits from the wrist. You know what I mean? A lot of drummers just slam with their elbows down. I mean, you can only make drums go so loud, right? Unless you put power on them with microphones. So you're only going to get a certain sound out of a drum unless you're cranking it out front. And that's not, in my opinion, the groove. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so can I ask you about the show last night? Uh, when is the last time you actually met the Accept guys, like Wolf and Peter? Had it been had it been a really long time? I haven't. I didn't actually speak with them. We made eye contact and kind of smiled and winked at each other. Uh, Thirty years, to be honest. And and there's a lot of bad blood between us because it was a bad split. And their publicist, um, you work with Dustin Hardman, I believe. Yeah. Correct. And he worked. He works except in the States and Canada, I think. And now uh, there's a guy here named Marcus Vosgian. Marcus also does my marketing and publicity for El Proto Records here. And he works for Nuclear Blast. So I got an email and said, would you be interested in going? They're willing to put you on the guest list. And I was like, yeah, that's really nice. So I went right up front with all the kids, put my fists in the air, and I stood right in front of Peter, and he leaned over and smiled at me and winked and throw a pick to my wife. So it was nice. And I didn't really know if I should go blazing into the dressing room and go, hi, fellas, how are you? You know, and it just didn't feel right. So um, maybe next time it'll get better, but I think it's good for the public to see us all, you know, in the same building. And, and the fans were really nice to me. I was in the audience and people were coming up and asking me about, you know, painted centers, uh, my solo music, you know, uh, when are we playing Italy again? So it was a good move, you know what I'm saying? It was it was good for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Now I wanted I also want to ask you about the, the Eat the Heat record. Um, I, okay. I'll say it, I I love that album. I've loved it since it came out. Let me 
But I'm curious Thank as you. to why now you're going out playing the whole thing. A couple of reasons. Uh, Grand Bonnet's manager, his name is Giles Labry. Do you know him? No. Okay, Giles has been on my rear end for a couple of years, but I never gave that record its due, its respect. And with Except, you know, we only played a few songs off it. We had to play the classics, obviously, because that's what you do. Um, so he was always on me to do it, and I was just a little like, eh. And he goes, David, I, people really want to see it. When I was in Bonfire, especially, every night that I go to the auto merchandise booth to meet, meet and greet, uh, people would always have that album for me to sign. And they would say to me, you know, when this came out, I hated your guts because I'm an Udo loyalist and an accept loyalist. But the later I've listened to this, the more I've deeply begun to love this album. And I'm like, really? So all this is sort of kind of coming at me at the same time. And I was asked today about it. You know, what's kind of funny, Udo's back to the roots and accept is on tour. And now you're doing the eat the heat thing. And I said, no, that's not why I did it. I didn't even think about that. So why, I started thinking, hmm. So while I was doing the Ian Pace rehearsals, I was having the same, you know, Child in Time, uh, you know, Space Truck, and, and songs like that. And I'm like, you know, my range can handle this. Let me put on the Eat the Heat album. And I sang it, and it was weird, because I hadn't really listened to the whole album in years. And I remembered almost every word, and I was hitting the notes, and I said, I can do it. So, miraculously, a friend of mine, Tony, who has a festival in Barcelona called Matavoc, called me, or emailed me, and said, would you be willing to do that album in its entirety live, headline my, one day of my festival? And I'm like, yeah. So the cool thing about it is that every country I go to, I use a different uh, people from the country. And it's cool because a lot of the guys are in their 30s and 40s and they love the album too, so they know the song. And they're professional. I get to travel, be the front man, perform my show, and give that album its due credit. I mean, it's 30 years old. Are you going to play, I believe it came out with 10 tracks and then it was reissued more recently with 12. Which version are you going to do? Are you going to do 10 or 12? I'm not going to do Stand For What You Are. It's a little too pop for me. I'm going to do Break The Ice as a bonus track. Uh, and I tell you in mashups where during the songs I jump out of D-Train and go right into Restless and Wild. And then I go into Seek and Destroy by Metallica as a break in the middle and then back into D-Train. I've okay. mashed it up, so it's modern, and it's got all the elements from the you know the, the heyday of the 80s uh, kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to play Chain Reaction. Um, I'm going to sing The Ballad of Streeter. Lovely song. Uh, I'm going to play Shake Your Heads from Restless and Wild, and I'm going to do Princess of the Dawn, and maybe London Leather Boys as a little extra. Yeah. But yeah. I'm going I'm I'm to play pretty much the whole album, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you're doing it. I, I, like, you know, there's certain bands that are out there playing, you know, classic albums with the, the original singers. And, of course, Accept are out now with Mark. And I, I often mm -hmm. felt that that was one album that I loved that came out that, you know, it didn't really get its due because you didn't even finish the tour, I believe, when you when you went out promoting it originally. No. We went out at a club day on a club thing that I actually helped book. We did 30, 32 shows in a row. Now, Accept is a working machine. That's a business. And that's, they taught me a lot about being a, a serious singer. And then we went out with Lost, and that lasted a few weeks, and then it turned into a disaster. But, you know, ticket sales weren't that good. Uh, the Udo fans hated me, and the new fans loved me. Kind of like when Dio went out with, with Sabbath, you know, and, and, and I always used to listen to what he said. Ronnie always said, you know, it's like being in the lion cage. You open the lion's mouth, you stick your head in, and if he bites, bites down, there goes your head. Give it everything you got, blah, blah, blah. And I, I personally owe my career to that album, good or bad, that opened all these doors to speak to, to people like you. I've been doing interviews all day. And I would not have this opportunity had it not been for except picking me out of thousands of people. And it was a fluke how they ended up with my cassette tape. Uh, it, it was just miraculous. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you a couple of quick questions about recording that album? Uh, what did you sing at the audition? Okay, the audition was insane. It lasted about a month. And I'm like, that's how they are. They had to be very careful because prior to me, they had hired an Englishman named Robert Armitage, and he was very timid, had a nice voice, but it just didn't work. Um, I got a phone call because they had the cassette tape that I'd done demos with Mitch Perry from Talos had ended up in Dieter Dirks's hand because he was dating an American girl that knew me. And when I got there, I, you know, being a fan, of course, I thought, well, the Scorpions are doing Savage Amusement, and I can't wait to meet the Scorpions. So I walk in the studio, and there's Rudy, 
talking to Dieter Dirks, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And they just kind of looked at me like, hey, how are you? And Peter Baltus walked me immediately downstairs into a demo room with a 24-track machine, two-inch tape, started playing these songs. One was Turn the Wheel Around, um, and I don't know what else, I think D-Train. And the music was there and, and a couple of titles, right? And he said, all right, sing something. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, what? Can we have a drink, a beer? I, I got jet lag. Can I have something to eat? He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll order it from the, from the kitchen upstairs. Just, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I had a 58 microphone, uh, sure. And I just started singing blah, 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 blah melodies to what I felt. And then I'd scribble words down. So every night after I was done, Wolf would show up alone. Stephen Kaufman would show up. And they would listen and analyze what I was doing. Now, this went on for a few weeks, right? And then we decided we were going to uh, uh, start rehearsing at this club called the Empire in Cologne, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't officially in the band. I was afraid to ask because, you know, they said, well, these things take time. And, you know, we're rehearsing there. And then one day they said to me, okay, we're going to play this club because they had a nightclub connected to it, a workout place, rehearsal place, kind of German thing. And the first gig was at a place called the Empire Rock Club. And I'm like, okay, this must be the final, you know, cherry on the top if I can pull this off. Well, we go across the street the night of the show. When I look out the window, there's about a thousand kids standing in the rain because they advertised it as Germany's number one metal band. So all the fans knew who it was and they knew they had a new singer. I'm petrified. Um, I go into the venue, and it's all or nothing. I know I'm going to get canned if I don't do well. I go on stage. I throw my guts out, right? I just sing my heart out. And people are stage diving, going crazy. And the next morning, I was about ready to start packing my bags because we were staying in a guest house that Dieter owned. And I could hear Gabby, Wolf's wife upstairs, who manages the band. And they were all talking at breakfast. And I walked upstairs waiting to hear, you know, well, didn't work out, good luck. But I standing there, she reached her hand out and she said, welcome to accept. And then we went into actual production on the album. So yeah. after about four to six weeks, very, very German way. Yeah. How, how tough was Dieter on you vo- vocally? Because you hear stories about the Savage Amusement record, that he, he re- was really, really tough on the Scorpions recording that. Okay, well, he basically took the blame for destroying Klaus's work, um, which is before Blackout. The reason was, is, you know, he would make me sing. We'd start at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and sing till 1 a.m. Well, our days would have been a break. Um, during the process of recording, he started hearing a distortion in my voice. And I didn't know, but I'd been living with a massive sinus infection for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it really, well, what was happening after singing all day, the, the, I guess the poison of the mucus would leak down my throat and inflame my vocal cords. My voice was strong, but he could hear this little distortion, and he got really nervous. He said, I pushed Klaus to the limit, and I'm not going to do it with you. Go to a doctor. And they looked at my nose, and all he needs surgery. They cleaned it all out, and a couple days later, I'm just singing like I was 16 again. Wow. Um, but yeah, he pushed me to the point, my timing was terrible, and I had no concept of really singing good harmonies, and Dieter's really good at that. I mean, one word on still loving you, that time after time mm-hmm. that Klaus did, that took eight hours to get the right time. I mean, that's a little extreme, but he had to have that right breath and that right air. So yes, he pushed Klaus. There sometimes he told me there was a couch behind us. We'd sing in the control room, and there was a couch behind you, and he said one night Klaus collapsed physically. He fainted, and he said... You know, they were touring small clubs in the early days and, and living in cold bands and, you know what I mean, exposing themselves, partying. And they played all the time. And in the old Scorpions, he was screaming his head off. And he never learned how to properly sing. So the wear and tear of the road and then Dieter in the studio, because you're in the studio with Dieter for years. It took a year to finish Eat the Heat. Dieter, I think, loved the first thing in Blackout took two or three years each. I mean, it's like Mutt Lang. I mean, it's, it's, it's insanity. But he taught me timing. Um, he made me sleep with a metronome under my pillow at night. We'd be working on a track. We'd do a rough demo the first day. And he'd say, not bad. Go work on this. Take the metronome. Here's the beats. Sleep with the metronome. Listen to the cassette when you fall asleep. Come in tomorrow. We'll start again. Then we do the second day. Get a pretty good layout. And he said, we're getting close. 
take a few days off from it, listen, rehearse it, come back in, let's nail it. So each song, yeah, multiple hours, multiple. There must have been a stage but, during the recording where you were screaming at him. Oh, yeah. I lost my mind many times. <laughs> one thing he said to me, I did. I lost my mind. Because Dieter was, in those days, a party guy, famous, you know, kind of like a rock star in his own way. And he got his way. You know, he got to a level where he, everything he touched, he thought was going to be gold. But one thing he said to me that I never forgot while we were recording and things were going well, and he stopped the tape and swung his chair around and looked at me and said, David, you realize that this album fails. It's your fault and my fault. They only blame the producer and the singer, the new singer. I said, oh, shut up. Come on, let's go to it. No, David, if this fails, you and I fail. And I'll tell you what, he was absolutely correct. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he was a great teacher to me. I went to see him a few years ago. He's had some bad health. Um, but it was nice just to sit down on the terrace and, and drink coffee and, and talk about rock and roll and how he was. And he taught me a lot. Taught me a lot. Yeah, well, one of the things I want to ask, just ask you quickly, David, about the working environment there, because, of course, you have Dieter, who's German. The other four guys in the band are German. If you're all in the same room and they're all conversing, are they conversing in English to not make you feel awkward, or are they, are they conversing in the role language? Uh, typically in German. How did that make, how did that make you feel? Normal, paranoid, nervous. I never knew if I was in the band. You never really knew with those guys. That was a difficult thing to, to accept. They were a, a cohesive unit for so many years without me that I was an outsider. And then being an American, and then trying to learn German quickly. I had a German girlfriend at the time. And, you know, they said some nasty things about me at the dinner table in German, and she just sat there quietly. But um, uh, one night she told me what they said, and she told me how to respond. <laughs> and I did it. And it, I mean, I literally stopped the conversation. They all looked at me like, how long has you been speaking German? So, <laughs> you got the swear so words. Gotcha. You got the swear well, words. I got the yeah. Well, basically, I said, I have no fear of any of you in <laughs> German. And they, <laughs> they looked on their faces like, his girlfriend's been teaching him. Uh-oh. So I've since learned pretty good German. And, uh, you know, and of course, you know, you join the band, you're in their country. You know, you need to know their their, their language. So you don't immediately learn it. But, you, you know, there was multiple things against me, stacked up against me. I mean, it started off tough. It ended tough. So I take a lot of the blame, um, you know. But there's some on their side, too. Which yeah. I think they're aware of that. After 30 years, they, you know, we're, we're grown men. They're having great success with Mark. Um, it's working. Udo is very successful. So, you know, come on. Let's all be men and shake hands, right? Yeah, I believe Udo is playing um, Ecstasy and he's set now. He has for years. Yeah, how does that, how does that <laughs> yeah. make you feel? Like, you, know, you, you have a lot of singers out there that, the, Rob Halford to be an example, right? So Ripper Owens did two Judas Priest albums in the 90s. And he's never sang any of those songs. And here's Udo coming out singing a song that you recorded after he left. I, I thought about it the other day. And I thought, you know what? I'm honored because I'm good friends with Udo. And that's a kick-ass song. <laughs> I well, love playing that song. I, mean, I, I love that. Uh -huh. I love that song.
Yeah, and, and to know that Udo's performing it at every show, um, everybody said, oh, I saw Udo last night, he did ecstasy. I said, yeah, and also we recorded it with Accepts with him. Mm-hmm. So, and I think they did a few songs that I did, I think, they recorded when they had the reunion. But, yeah. No, I, I talk, it's flattering. Um, he does a great job at it, and the crowd loves it, so it kind of opens the door for when I do it, people know the song. It's actually, that song was banned in England, I was told, because the, the English radio thought I was singing about the drug. <laughs> I think it was banned, which, which actually gave us great press because you know, any kind of stuff like that, when the government tries to control what you do, uh, is good promotion, right? I heard that rumor. I'm not exactly sure if it was true, but... Yeah, I remember growing up, David, and um, they banned Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax, and it went straight in at number one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. Relax, don't you? I mean, that was a big scene, though, right? The synth pop in, your, in the UK. I mean, huge. Yeah, there was a, a lot of the hard rock bands in the 90s, the likes of Slaughter and Winger and all these guys, they, ne- they were never big in England. They were huge in America, well, but no one knew them in England because nobody played them. Yeah. You know what hurt me the most was in Bangalore Choir, the band after Accept. We yeah. were dropped when the grunge area kicked in, but I, I played Firefest in 2007. And I was told by the record company, it's over, get a real job, stop singing, you know, music is done. Um, I didn't know that Bangalore Choir was hugely successful in the UK and Europe. They didn't tell me. So I just kind of, the band just fell apart. And uh, we were asked to play there, and the album had been out for 19 years. I started the set, and every person in the audience was singing along with me on that album. People were looking at me going, why did you guys break up? You should have come to Europe. If I didn't know that, I would have bought tickets, slummed it, lived like a gypsy, and kept the band alive. But I was told we were dead. But we actually had great UK and European success that I was never aware of. Yeah, I was talking to, um, I don't know whether you know Jamie St. James from Black and Blue, and um, he told me the same story. He said they, they went to England for the first record, and then they never got over there again. And then, like, same thing with you, like, it was one of the festivals they went over. They couldn't believe the amount of people that, that turned up to see them. Yeah, Dieter did one of their albums, Dieter Dirks. He did a Black and Blue album. He did the first one, I believe. Yeah, the debut. Yeah. Yeah, with the flag in the front. But I'll say, yeah, Peter, Peter was a fan. I mean, they they had a chance, but you know, the problem with labels is they're not going to tell you anything. You know, they tell you your your life's over, and you know, you're so depressed, you believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So just one fi- <laughs> just one final question, David, before I leave you go. Um, you've replaced two iconic singers in in two bands, like one being Udo and and of course Klaus in Bonfire. Was it easier the second time around? to replace an established singer because you kind of knew what, 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 what the lie of the land was after doing it the first time. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't bad, but I got to say about Hans Ziller, he's a, you know, he's a, a snake in clothing. I mean, he was not the person that he presented himself as and Klaus warned me the band was breaking up and he said, be careful. And I said, I was defending Hans and I said, no, we're a team. And he looked at me and goes, you'll see. It was a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it, it came into fruition. The whole, the way he, the dynamic he works. I have no love lost for that guy. Um, but I went out there and I sang my heart out. Uh, obviously, you know, you've got the traditionalists that love Klaus, and uh, he was the guy. Um, I did a great job. That album, Glorious, was one of the best-selling albums in ten years. We sold six thousand copies. We were right behind White Snake's Purple album in the charts. I mean, it was amazing. We're doing a hundred, we did 180 shows on that tour. Wow. Yeah. So, but you know, the guy just did not turn into be somebody pleasant to work with. And I, I absolutely had no regrets if I ever see the man again. I mean, Frank has to play in the band. I respect that, but it's nothing that I'm, I mean, I, I, the good thing I did with that band was I got to play multiple shows and basically bring my career back to life. Um, but that's that's all I could really say about that. Yeah, because th- you, you probably would have been able to see the signs a little bit quicker the second time than the first time. Well, uh, you know, he's very good. He's very good at hiding it. But, you know, when you work in a, in a unit and you're out touring, you know, you run into... David B. Roth said it really, really well. Be careful who you screw on the way up because you'll see all of them on the way down. And there was a bad trail of bookings and management misdeeds and band misdeeds that Bonfire had done to the public and venues. 
that I walked into and I was unaware of. So automatically they think I'm like that. And they realized I wasn't, but there was not much good said about it. The only saving grace for Bonfire was that they had those classics like You Make Me Feel and Give It a Try. And they can put the fans in a room, and it's only in the south of Germany, really. They're not really that big anywhere else. But, you know, in the south of Germany, we were doing, you know, 500 to 1,000 people at a time. So they have that, the name saves it, you know. Yeah, because I'm, so. yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, a massive fan of the Fireworks album that they did in 88, I believe. Yeah, that's the best album they ever did. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the, the, the milestones for Bonfire. I mean, Fireworks Magazine is named after that album because Bruce Mee was a huge fan. Uh, Firefest was basically taken from the Fireworks album. Uh, Bruce Mee and Karen Darn, and they're a huge Bonfire fan, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so what have you got lined up, David, besides the Eat the Heat shows? Do you have a lot of touring dates for Santa Sinners coming? Uh, we've got, we start Friday in Switzerland and Saturday. Uh, we have Germany in February and Czech Republic. Not many right now. What I'm very excited to announce is that I've got a solo album coming out. And a multiple album deal with uh, Mighty Music in Copenhagen, a division of Target Records. And uh, Mike Tramp introduced me to the president. Uh, I've got a new album, nearly done, written, uh, demoed. Um, it's not going to be like David Reese doing a David Reese Saint and Center solo album. It's real punchy, heavy, melodic. So if you like Easy Heat, I think you're really going to like this. It's got that soulful, hard rock vocals with that European element, with that Scandinavian thing. I, they've got something in the water in Scandinavia. Those guys can rock. Yeah. You know what I mean? This yeah. album, I'm very, I mean, I love it. I love it. I love it. We, we come out in November. Uh, we have five or six shows already uh, procured for November into December. And then they want me to do into January, and they want me to do all the, the festivals throughout 2019. And I'm sure Frank and will come out to you again with another album because, you know, Frank and I are good friends and I respect him. So it's a good year. I, I call it the year of Dave. I'm really going to try to throw out as much as I can. If everybody goes to David Reese Official, I just did a video today with background music of me live doing uh, the EPD album. Bunch of photos, tour dates, merchandise, everything I've got is available. And a lot of these shows, I made specifically just a limited amount of t-shirts for that venue, 25. It says, tonight, I'll eat the heat with Reese. And it's the logo of the venue, the date, pretty cool. I got hats, I got patches, I got all the stuff. Yeah, it's great It's great to see you so active, David, you know, because you know, the, the business you, is so hard now. Like, I've had a lot of musicians tell me, and they got to do multiple projects now to survive in it. Yeah, and that's the problem with, with Frank and I and with Ferdy and those guys. I mean, I mean, I know a lot of great musicians that were in huge bands in the 80s or collectively playing together, but then also 15 different bands. And it's scheduling is a nightmare. Because if you see your favorite guitar player in your favorite band, and then he comes back two weeks later in another band that's not so well-known, why would you pay for it? So it's causing a huge row just in organizations. Uh, but that's how a lot of us are surviving. You know, if you don't accept your scorpions, you can sell it out. Yeah, but the, the the other thing with that as well, David, is a lot of them playing all these projects and they never do shows because they're always playing in projects. That's right. And you know what? They get a couple of hundred euros to play guitar on an album and they send it home. You know, a lot of the guys, too, are just tired of it. You know, they, they've gone through the 80s and 90s. After that all collapsed, that was a difficult time for a lot of us. Jamie Lane, me, uh, even Poison, a lot of those bands. So look at Brett. He's out doing his thing. Vince Neal is doing his thing. Uh, but it was tough on the guys that didn't have the, the platinum sellers, you know? It was really tough. If you did like three, 400,000 copies, you know, you're suffering right now, you know? So you're doing uh, internet albums like you like you suggested. Yeah, it must be like, you know, I'll, I'll bring it back to what we talked about in, in the beginning. It's more comfortable now being where you are to get your music out there. Because if you were living in the U.S., you probably you probably pulling your hair out now trying to you know get gigs oh, yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. Well, for instance, when I started, it was in Minnesota, and we played in a band called Dare Force, and we were the largest local club band playing the five state area: Minnesota, Iowa, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, and we had a huge following. And a certain booking agent was working in a basement with a dial phone, booking outs for five percent 
And I was making about $100, $150 a week in those days, playing seven shows a week, five hours a day. Now he's one of the largest promoters in the United States. He's handling some pretty name acts. He won't touch an artist unless he's going to make a minimum of $1,000 per commission. So a guy like me who actually gave him a lift up is irrelevant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's painful. It's painful because I remember those days when he was hanging around trying to eat our backstage food and get somewhere. And now he's turned into kind of a celebrity. But, you know, I could use his help, to be honest, you know. (laughs) But, you know, there's no money in it. So, yeah, it's painful. And the club owners are not going to speak to you directly unless you know them. How rootless is the music business now? Has it always been as rootless as as they make it out to be? Like, has it changed much at all for you? Uh, I think it's it's getting worse by the year. I mean, it's always been an evil entity. The contracts that they give you are worded in such a manner you'd have to be Einstein to really break it down. There's counterdictions that you you don't catch. But I've gotten smarter in reading contracts. Like if line A in first page says this, and then it says something totally different on page three, I'll say, hey, that's up for you know interpretation. And they'll label go, oh, we didn't see that. And then they'll take that out. Um, it's always been about the business, you know. They don't care about the artists. If you're not making money for them, they don't care. I mean, they don't, don't think they're going to dinner with a record company and sitting around, you know, palling around and partying that they're your friends. When it comes down to them losing money, they forget they know you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the brutal truth about it. It's like business. If I, I mean, I'm in construction. If I hire a guy that's really good and he comes to work seven days in a row and he doesn't show up for three days and comes to me on Friday and says, I need my money. He's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm losing money. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, or the guy that comes up to me every day for $20 and says it's to feed his kids. And then on Friday, well, you've taken out, you know, $200 out of your $300 paycheck and you hand him $100, he starts crying when you know he went and bought a pack of cigarettes and a 12 pack of beer on the way home. You know, and then he's telling me, oh, but my kids, my kids, well, I, you know, I don't have it. Um, that happens a lot. And then you say, Hey, you've been dipping in my pocket too long. Manage your money. You're a good guy, but otherwise you got to go. Because the more you do that, the more you stick out like record companies, you're not going to see it back. So I think the record companies have gotten a little tighter. You know, if you sell 5,000 albums now, it's successful. In my day, if you didn't sell 500,000, you were done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you can imagine, with the, role, the the business model now, there's profit in selling 2,000 records for a record company. Not for a band, but that model is still working. It's still happening. But if you would have told me 30 years ago that I could sell 5,000 albums and the label would be going crazy, I would have laughed at it. Yeah. It, it seems to me now that a lot of musicians are they're getting a lot more savvy with the business aspect of it. Even some of them, like... Um, Danny Bowes from the band Thunder, he he manages the band now. Like a lot of them are actually getting more active in that area. It's like I know what was fucked up in the beginning, and I'm going to handle all that now and do it the right way. You know, a big part of that is you're frightened, you know, because you work so hard to get signed, right? Mm-hmm. You work so hard to get there, and then you look at a contract and you say. This is bullshit. <laughs> you know, but if you say that, they'll say, fine, then I'll find so-and-so down the street. And, and they got you. But one thing I've learned over the years to answer your other question, the easiest thing to say is no. And it's miraculous how they will come back at you and go, okay, what can we do to make you happy? Had I known that 30 years ago, I probably would not be doing this. I'd be living on a ranch in Montana. So uh, a lot of it was here. We were all desperate to make it. We wanted to be relevant. And the record companies were power. But like you said, you know, the guys in Thunder and all these bands, you've read these contracts enough, you start to smell a rat on the first or second page. And you go, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. You know what? It's not even worth the stress and the heartache and anxiety trying to make an album knowing I signed myself away and I will not see anything in return. Yeah, so the record companies are getting more notice that, hey, the bands are getting a little more savvy. And they can make their own albums now and sell them on the website. Yeah, like uh, you hear all these musicians over the years and they're always bitching and moaning about the record contracts that they signed back in the 80s. And I always say, you signed them. Nobody put a gun to your head to do it. It's your fault if you didn't actually get somebody to look at it properly. 
and say, look, you shouldn't have done this. I'll tell you what, one thing that's, that, that's true about that is they, one thing they did know is we didn't have the money to buy a $1,000 an hour lawyer who passed it on to his assistant, which takes, you know, they saved 10 hours, but it really took an hour. And, you know, you weren't uh, versed in knowledge of legal mumbo-jumbo legal stuff. Um, but had you gone to them, if they were seriously interested in signing you and you brought an attorney to theirs, maybe you would have gotten a little more respect out the door. I think one of the best stories I ever heard was Aerosmith. You know, they had left Columbia Records to go to Geffen, and then that turned into a bad deal. So they left Geffen, and Columbia begged to have them back. But I had read that millions were missing, you know, because they were on drugs. They weren't really sure what they were owed. Lieber Krebs had taken money, their management. So Columbia begged for a multi-album deal. And the money I heard was $38 million for five albums. They didn't say what kind of albums. Well, if you remember about 10 years ago, Aerosmith released about five live albums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, right. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Honking on Bobo. I mean, these are albums with the same songs recorded live on great, great recordings, but they were live albums. And I was like, why are they releasing all these live albums? And then I, I read, Tyler kind of said, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Got you finally. I got some of it back. Yeah, the, the other thing that, that was amazing about you go back to the 90s, right? The record companies own all the masters. And yet Motley Crue were able to get their masters and own them. That was really rare at the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, who who owned I mean, them? Go on. Sorry, David. I mean, I mean, Mickey Six is no dummy, okay? I mean, this guy is a marketing genius. He learned the ropes. And look what he's doing with his career. He's constantly evolving. They went back and got the masters. They own their music. Michael Jackson bought Paul McCartney's publishing. Paul McCartney had to buy it back from the Michael Jackson <laughs> company. I mean, uh, you know, if you got a half a brain and a little money, you can negotiate it, right? Yeah, it's just that, like, I speak. You speak to a lot of guys, and I'd say, you know, did this album you brought out? It was a great album, and you know, it never got remastered and or remixed. And they're like, I have no idea where the masters are. I don't know who the record company yeah. is now because they've had fifty mergers. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, I know a guy that was pretty smart in Bangalore Choir, the drummer. He snuck into the vault uh, and stole the masters. He's holding them <laughs> hostage. <laughs> He's holding them hostage because he was fired. He's no dummy. He went to the studio late at night and knew the engineer and said, hey, I need the masters. Oh, okay, they're right here. And he's got them in a vault somewhere in Vegas, <laughs> I've been told. Because I wanted him to remaster the album and re-release it myself and put, add some bonus tracks to it. But I have to pay a pretty hefty fee to get them. So. <laughs> okay. All right, David. Well, good news. Can you can you just before I let you go? Can you just let me know all the the social media sites where people can uh, check out all the tour dates and maybe get in touch with you? Yeah, you can go to Sainted Sinners on the website. Uh, I mean, excuse me, Facebook. Um, El Puerto Records been a great label to us. I got to tip my hat. Burned and told them the guys have been great and Matt, the fantastic people. Young label, hungry. Uh, El Puerto Records, you can go to David Reese Official. Um, there's lots of news about Santa Tinners and my Eat the Heat and my solo album coming up. It's there today. I just posted a, li- a video I told you about with actual live recordings of me with singing a sub song. So it's got a YouTube on it, a link you can go to it. And that's how you can find out all things. Santa Tinners, David Reese, Craig Connick, Um And I appreciate everybody. I appreciate you. Uh, you know, Richie, it's been a great conversation. All right. Thanks, David. Well, when the solo album comes out, hopefully I can uh, have you back on and we'll help you promote that. Yep. All right, David. Well, have great. a good rest great. of the day. You too, my mate. Thank All you right. for the time. No problem. no problem. Bye. Ciao. Bye. All right. Big thanks to David Reese for coming back on board Focus on Metal once again, talking about some more Sainted Sinners music. And why don't we play one more track off of Back with a Vengeance before we get out of here? This one's called Burning the Candle.
There you go. One last track from the brand new one from Sainted Sinners, Burning the Candle. And, you know, even though that I'm a guitar guy, I do kind of miss the presence of that Hammond out front. Now, that was part of what I really liked about the original Sainted Sinners release was it really brought back a lot of that purple attitude. But uh, but I ain't complaining. Lots of good tracks on this one. And again, if you want to uh, catch up with Sainted Sinners, you could go to Facebook.com slash Sainted Sinners, but also you can go to saintedsinners.com. And if you want to hit David himself, you can go to facebook.com slash David Reese official. And I know we've mentioned about going to davidreese.com and I don't know about you guys, but I did try that address and I get a 404 error. So I think he might've been thinking about saintedsinners.com when he threw that out or it's under uh, maintenance or whatever. But anyways, there you go. There's your social media links to hook up with David Reese, as well as Sainted Sinners. And also, you know, a few times within that interview, he did mention his label, El Puerto Records. And uh, yeah, great, great, uh, great label. I think they're uh, really kind of one of those up and coming people to watch. And if you want to check those guys out, it is L-Puerto-Records.com. And yeah, lots of great bands on there. Obviously, Sainted Sinners, but you also have Bisto Blanco, they're uh, also hooked up with Rat Pack and then uh, Stepfather Fred, which we had on the show at some point last year. Great interview with those guys. Like I said, uh, these guys are slowly building a roster of some really solid bands. So there you go. And speaking of the old social media links, I'll just toss them out again. If you want to uh, catch up with all of our past and current episodes, you can head up to focusonmetal.net. And the latest ones are right there on the homepage. Otherwise, you can go over to the episodes page, and there is just a metric metal shit ton of shows there. Also, you can catch most of those on both of our iTunes feeds. And then, as always, of course, focus on metal.blogspot.com, where we put up our show notes every week and every so often some new stuff, although I have to admit, I haven't been too good about doing that lately. And then, of course, the uh, undeniably Irish gorilla in the room. That would be uh, Richie always covering everything on Facebook. And I'm bringing it up with everything going on on Twitter. But uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is indeed done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week... Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.